All right, everybody. Well, today we are continuing in our series on the letter to the Philippians. And as always, I encourage you, if you've missed any of them, you can find them on our website at LancasterFirst.com under the media tab. And so last week, we began chapter 3 of the letter to the Philippians and saw that Paul there kind of pivoted to a new subject. And he had been talking to them about how to conduct themselves in a manner that is worthy of the gospel of Christ. And then at the beginning of chapter 3, he kind of pivoted to talk about this threat that was coming to the church from within, right? And because there were certain teachers who were going around teaching everybody that uh, in order to be saved or to remain saved, um, just having Jesus wasn't enough. You also had to become Jewish and uh, follow all the Jewish customs and laws of Moses, all those ceremonial laws and all of those things, right? And they were teaching that in opposition to the teaching of all the apostles and in opposition to their specific instructions not to teach that because it wasn't true, right? And so Paul comes against that idea. He warns them about these teachers, comes against that idea by showing them the righteousness of God that comes only through faith in Jesus Christ. Christ, right? And he shows them how all human achievements, all the trophies that we can amass, all all the human achievements and uh, things that the world can offer, all of that is garbage compared to knowing Jesus, right? And and there's, there's nothing that this world can offer that would be worth trading Jesus for. And then he said that his ultimate goal was to know Jesus Christ experientially, right? Through the power of his resurrection and through the sharing in his sufferings as well, okay? So it's more than just outward religious trappings. It's about knowing God. It's about experiencing the Lord Jesus Christ, all right? So today, we're going to be looking at chapter 3, verses 12 to 14. So let's read it all together, and then we'll come back and unpack it. Philippians chapter 3, verses 12 to 14, it says this. He says, not that I've already obtained all this, to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Brothers and sisters, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it. But one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining towards what is ahead, I press on towards the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. Would you all bow in prayer with me over the word of God this morning? Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for your word, God. Open up our hearts to receive it now. Open up our minds to understand it, God. And open up our lives to live it and walk it out. For it's in the name of the Lord Jesus we pray. Amen. Amen. All right, so let's all unpack this together. All right, so look at verse 12 again. Look at the beginning of verse 12. He says, Not that I have already obtained all this or have already arrive at my goal, right? So the first question I have is this. What is this goal that has not been arrived at yet? What is the all this that he's talking about here that he hasn't obtained yet? Well, remember the rule of context, right? Context rules, right? And so um, the context here says that the goal that he's referring to that is yet to be realized is the things that he's been talking about in the last several verses, It's his desire to know Christ, to know Jesus experientially. 
So, so this makes me ask, you know, Paul, what are you talking about here? Because don't you remember that last week um, he showed us in the previous verses that we can know Christ now. We can know Jesus in the here and now. We can have a relationship with him now. We, we can know him in the power of his resurrection. Every time we experience something of his resurrection power, like we, if we experience the grace of God or the mercy of God, the forgiveness of God, we're experiencing him now. If we experience the ministry of the Holy Spirit, the indwelling Holy Spirit, the overflowing Holy Spirit, or the gifts of the Spirit, if you experience a healing or a word of knowledge, a word of wisdom, discernment, all of those activities of the Holy Spirit, all of those flow out of knowing Jesus, right? So we can know him and we can experience him in the here and now. And Paul's already been showing us that. And even in the midst of suffering, we can know Jesus in the here and now. He said, I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. So we can know him in the here and now. And Paul's been saying that. So what does he mean then when he says, I haven't obtained this goal of really knowing him? Well, what he's saying is that he hasn't arrived, right? He hasn't obtained this fully, right? In other words, he's saying even though he does know him now, he, he doesn't completely know him. He doesn't yet have the full revelation of Jesus that he will have when he sees him face to face. He doesn't know Jesus yet like he will when he sees him face to face. I think that's part of what he's saying here. He said it this way to the Corinthians. He said, for now, we see only a reflection as in a mirror. And back then, the mirrors they had, they weren't like our mirrors today that are really, really clear, if you have them clean, right? They were made of brass, and they were kind of a dim reflection. You can kind of get an idea what you look like, but um, it wasn't very good. And so he's saying, now we're seeing the realities and knowing Christ kind of that way. We do know him. But then, when we see him face to face, we're going to see the real thing. We're going to experience the, uh, the real thing without any limitations on that. And, and he's saying, so I haven't obtained all of that yet. I haven't obtained to that level of knowing Jesus. You know, but I think he may be also talking a little bit broader here. He may also be referring to all of the things that he's been talking to them about in this letter, all of the aspirations of how you should live your life. I think he also has that in view as well, how to conduct ourselves in a manner worthy of Christ. So, so he may be saying, you know, I haven't yet perfectly attained to all of these lofty goals, right? This life of tenderness and compassion and being of one mind and one spirit and of love and the life of humility, of considering the needs of others before uh, before yourselves. He said, I've experienced that, I've been living that, but I, but I haven't yet fully lived that. There's more growing to be had, right? He's saying he hasn't completely arrived there yet, hasn't completely obtained all of that either. He knows Jesus in the power of his resurrection, in the fellowship of his sufferings, but he doesn't completely know him the way he will when he sees Jesus face to face, and so he doesn't yet perfectly express all of those things yet. And I think he may also be saying that he doesn't know Jesus as much now as he will, say, 10 years from now, or maybe next year, or maybe even next month or tomorrow, right? I mean, think about it for a little bit. How many of you, if you've been serving Jesus, you've been walking with Jesus for a little while, you know him better now than you did on the day that you came to faith in Jesus? Well, you know, I hope you do. 
I hope you've done some growing in your faith and in, in, in knowing Jesus a little bit, a little bit more. There's spiritual growth in the Christian life. And so as we look at this verse and the next few verses coming up, we can see here again two false ideas that are excluded from the Christian life because of Jesus. Two wrong ideas that the gospel and the Bible writers disallowed. And it's all because of Jesus, the risen Jesus. You know, and I've taught this before, but I think it bears a little bit of repeating. You know, and as a matter of fact, look at the beginning of this chapter. Paul said, you know, it's not a problem for me to write the same things to you again because it's a safeguard for you, all right? So um, two things right, that the gospel writers disallowed. The first is legalism. I mean, it's the, the idea that we can earn our salvation by our good works, that somehow we can be good enough, that we need to do enough good works to earn God's favor, right? Or that we somehow contribute to our salvation. We help Jesus pay for our salvation. That's legalism. And uh, listen, God is completely 100% holy. And we are not that in ourselves, in our natural state, right? We can never measure up to that. And we can't do anything to contribute to our salvation to help Jesus pay for that. Jesus did, it took the sinless Son of God to become one of us, to live perfectly, to represent us before the Father, and to die the sinless, spotless Lamb of God to take away the sins of the world. And we have nothing to offer to that. So the entire New Testament rejects this idea of legalism. But it also rejects this idea called license, or libertinism, or some uh, call it antinomianism, which means anti-law, right? And it's the idea that since salvation is by grace, and you can't contribute anything to it, therefore, sin really doesn't matter at all in the life of the believer. It's completely irrelevant. You can just go ahead and sin all you want. It just doesn't matter. That's called, that's called license, right? As long as I profess my faith, I can go out and sin as much as I want, right? And so um, that idea is also rejected in the New Testament, all over the New Testament. It really has more to do with second century Gnosticism than it has to do with Christianity. So legalism and license both rejected in the New Testament. And here's what I really want you to see here, okay? They're rejected because of the living Jesus. Right? They're not rejected because of a better idea or a better philosophy or even a better theology. They're rejected because of someone, because of the living Lord Jesus Christ. And so instead of living in the tyranny of legalism or in the deceitfulness of, of license, we instead live in the liberty of the Son of the living God who lives out His life in us and through us by the power of the Holy Spirit. Because salvation is not a matter of works. It's not even a matter of just saying the right formula. It's about the power of a new life in Christ, lived by faith in Christ, in the power of the Holy Spirit. And at the point of faith in Jesus, then here's what happens. The grace of God comes, comes into us. It's extended to us. The forgiveness of God is granted to us. The righteousness of God is imputed to us, but there's even more. That Holy Spirit comes in, makes us alive again, indwells us, He fills us, ministers the life of Christ to us, transforms us into the image of Jesus, has this ongoing, day-by-day, moment-by-moment relationship with us. The author of Hebrews says it this way. He says, 
For by one sacrifice, he's made perfect forever those who are being made holy. We see here both the completion of it and the process in the same verse. We're already acceptable to God by that one sacrifice. And at the same time now, we are being made holy. And and Paul said it this way to the Corinthians. He says, and we all, who with unfilled faces reflect the Lord's glory, are being transformed into his image with ever-increasing glory the Lord, who is the Spirit. So here we see both again, right? We reflect the Lord's glory already, and we're in the process of being transformed. And so that's why he continues here in verse 12. He says, not that I have already obtained all this or have already arrived at my goal. He says, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. All right, so there's more progress available. There's more knowing Jesus available to you. There's more expressing Jesus available, right? You don't come to a place in your life where you say, you know what, I've arrived. I'm all done. You know, I can't grow any more than I've already grown. I can't know Jesus a little bit more than I, than I already know him right now. I, I've just arrived. You never come to that place in your spiritual life, right? Because think about it. I mean, if the Apostle Paul, who saw the risen Jesus and who was used in tremendous healing and miracles and was used to found churches uh, all across the known world and was caught up into heaven and shown things that he was not permitted to even speak about when he came back to earth. If that guy says, you know what, I haven't taken hold of it yet, I've still got some more growing and some more knowing to do. Well, he needs more growing and knowing than certainly all of the rest of us never get to a place where we say, you know what, I know him enough, I know him all the way I can possibly know him, there's nothing more for me. We don't get to that place. All right, now look here in this, um, this verse as well. Look at the phrases here, take hold and took hold. I, I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. You know, the Greek word there is katalambano. You know, some translations use the word apprehend, and some translations use the word seized. And the idea behind this word is to acquire something, but with some significant effort behind it, right? Not just something that someone dropped on your doorstep, but to acquire something because of some significant effort that that, that was involved, right? It's often used in the context of capturing someone or uh, of arresting someone or overpowering or overcoming an adversary, like a military general might say that they took hold of a city. You know, they laid siege to it, and finally they took hold of of the city with, with some great effort involved in that. And Paul here says that Jesus took hold of him. There's some effort that Jesus put forth to take hold of us. Some of us, it took a little bit more effort than others, right? Some of us resisted more than others, right? But really, the great effort that Jesus engaged in was the cross. It was the cross of Jesus. He loved us so much that when he saw that we were hopelessly separated him because of the sin that that took place in the garden, that we had no hope of ever returning to that relationship with him, 
Uh, he, he loved us so much that he didn't want to let that situation stand. And instead, he was willing to make significant effort on the cross to go there, to suffer there, to die there, the just for the unjust, to bring us to God. You know, I like that lyric from that song. I think it's about 20 years or more old now. It said, God loves people. Um, more than anything, and more than anything he wants us to know, he'd rather die than let us go. Yes, God loves people more than anything. And so in response to that, Paul says, I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. So, so let me ask you, what does he mean here when he says, I press on to take hold? Well, I mean, we know he's not saying he's pressing on to try to take hold of salvation, We've already shown that, that we don't work for our salvation. We don't earn our salvation, right? And he's not saying he's pressing on to earn forgiveness or become righteous. I mean, uh, think for a second. What is he talking about when he says, that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me? All right, well, remember your context again. He's talking about this knowing Christ experientially. The reason Jesus took hold of him the reason Jesus took a hold of us is so that we could know him. That we could know him experientially. So he's saying, I'm pressing on to know him more. That's why Jesus took hold of you. That's why Jesus took hold of me. That's why Jesus took hold of him, to know him more. And so the whole reason he went to the cross was for that. So Paul wants to know God, and I want to know God. You should want to know God. You should want to press on to continue to know God more and more. You know what? I look back over my life and I can see that today, you know, I know Jesus a little bit more than I did 10 years ago, right? And I hope you do as well. Press on, he says, to take that for which Christ Jesus took hold of you, the knowing God. Press on into that. Going on, let's look now at, at the next verses. Look at verses 13 and 14. He presses the point again, the same point. He says, you know, brothers and sisters, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it. That is, there's more knowing going on until we see Jesus face to face. There's no more growing going on. Uh, but look what he says. He says, going on, but one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining towards what is ahead, forgetting what is behind, straining towards what is ahead, I press on towards the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. So Paul here, he's using a sports metaphor to illustrate what he's talking about. I mean, remember Philippi is in Macedonia, which is a part of Greece there, and right during this time, we had the ancient Olympic Games that would, that would happen. And so he's using this sports metaphor, and he uses the image of a runner who's, who's not focused on what's behind him, not concerned about what's behind him, but instead he's focused on the finish line. He's pressing towards the finish line, and he's striving to reach that line and, and, and claim the prize. And so, so how does this apply to us? What is Paul trying to say to us here using this, this metaphor? Well, he says there are two things you need to do if you're going to win the prize if you're going to obtain all this, right? If, you, if you're going to arrive at the goal and, and take hold of this knowing Jesus for all eternity, right? Two things you need to do. First, he says, forget what is behind. Forget it. Don't think about it, right? Don't focus on it. So what are those things that are behind? 
Well, remember the context again. It's those things that he was talking about in, in verses 7 and 8. All of those, those gains and those goals and those trophies that he considers rubbish now. All of those things are the things that are behind. All the things that he considered lost now, right? All the, uh, all the counterfeit things that the world offers us in place of Jesus. He says, don't desire them again. Don't focus your attention on, on them again, right? Don't start to love the things of the world again. Leave all that behind. Don't, don't look behind at those things, right? Um, remember Lot's wife? How many of you remember the story of Lot's wife in the book of Genesis, right? Genesis 19, the Bible says the outcry against the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah and their wickedness was so great that God told Abraham he was about to destroy those cities. And Abraham knew that his, his nephew Lot and his family was living in that city. So, so Abraham uh, pleads with God about that, and so God agrees uh, to, to, to spare Lot and, and his family, and so we see that God sends these angels into the city to get Lot and his family out, and as they're leading them out of the city, the angels told him this. He said, flee for your lives. Don't look back. Flee to the mountain so you will be swept away. But in verse 26 it says, but Lot's wife looked back, and she became a pillar of salt. Now, what's going on there, right? It, it's not that the angels were saying, listen, as you flee, don't, don't peek, don't, look, don't turn around and peek or anything like that to see what's going on. And that Lot's wife just kind of peeked and then God judged her and turned her in a pillar of salt, right? It, that, that's not really what's happening here. What the angels were saying is, you know, don't look back. Don't turn back to that city. Don't go back there at all. If you do, you're going to be swept away. So don't, don't, don't look back. Keep going to, to your destination, right? And so when Lot's wife looked back, the idea isn't just that she peeked over her shoulder. It's that she, she, she turned around and she went back. And she was caught up in all of that destruction and turned into a pillar of salt as God rained judgment down on, on, on those cities, right? So he's saying, don't, don't turn back. Don't turn around, right? Uh, keep going. Don't be like Lot's wife. You know, did you know Jesus said in Luke 17? Um, he, he warned us. He said, don't be like Lot's wife. He said, remember Lot's wife. Whoever tries to keep their life will lose it. And whoever loses their life will preserve it. Remember the Israelites of old. We've been talking about them in this series, right? These, these, these Israelites, as God brought them out of the promised land and uh, brought them out of slavery. And Egypt is a symbol of the world and of sin. He brought them out of all of that. And he was about to bring them to the promised land. And, and, but they kept on looking back. They kept on looking back at Egypt and desiring Egypt and thinking it was such a great place and wanting to go back there until they finally ended up sacrificing the promised land for the sake of, uh, of Egypt. Think about Demas. How many of you remember Demas? <laughs> remember this guy named Demas? Well, he's in the New Testament, right? Uh, he's in there three times. Demas was one of Paul's co-workers. I mean, and he had helped Paul in the work of the Lord. Paul mentioned him at the end of the letter to Philemon. He said that Mark and Aristarchus and Demas and Luke, my fellow workers, send greetings to you. And then again, at the end of the book of Colossians, um, he's closing the letter and he says that Luke and Demas send you greetings. But by the time we get to 2 Timothy, Paul informs Timothy, tragically, he says, Demas, because he loved this world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Now, I don't know what he was chasing. 
in Thessalonica? I do know it was because he loved this world. I mean, he had worked with the great apostle Paul. He had seen all of those miracles and all of those uh, moves of the Spirit and the amazing things that God was doing. He had seen that, been a part of that. But apparently, he kept looking back. Apparently, he kept one eye on, on what the world could, could offer him. And eventually, that desire, the desires for what the world had, overpowered his desire for the kingdom of God. And because he loved this world, his faith was shipwrecked. Jesus said it this way. He says, no one who puts a hand to the plow and looks back is fit for service in the kingdom of God. And, you know, I think what he's referring to there is the calling of Elisha. I mean, do you remember that story in, in, in 1 Kings chapter 19? Elisha, he's out there with his oxen. He's plowing all his field. And, and here comes the prophet Elijah. The great prophet Elijah is coming. And, uh, and he goes right up to Elisha, takes his cloak off, and puts it on him. And, and that's a symbol of the calling of the Lord to speak prophetically for him. And, and it says that Elisha, the next thing he does is he took the yoke of oxen, which represented his livelihood, he slaughtered them, he burned the plowing equipment to cook the meat, and gave it to the people they ate. Then he set out to follow Elijah and became his servant. He didn't try to keep one hand on the world and one hand in the kingdom, one foot in the world and one foot in, in the kingdom. He went full steam ahead into the kingdom of God, into the plan of God for him. Paul says, forget what is behind. Forget it. Don't keep looking at it. Don't keep desiring the world. Forget all of those things, right? Then he says, strain towards what is ahead. Strain towards what is ahead. He's saying, like a runner presses towards the finish line, keep moving forward. Like a runner's motivated by the prize, keep focusing on Jesus. Keep looking at him. He's our prize. Remember chapter 1, Paul said, For to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Jesus is the prize. Knowing him, seeing him face to face, having him you embrace you and say, Welcome home. Enter into your Father's rest. To have him wipe every tear from your eyes and to look at you and say, Well done, you good and faithful servant. Look at the end of this verse here. He says, I press on towards the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. For which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. Now remember, this is a sports analogy. And whenever you're in a race, I mean, there's always people in the stands, right, rooting for you. Always people in the stands shouting for you. You have coaches on the infield who are encouraging you, right, and, and, and shouting you, encouraging you to, 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 to give it your best. And uh, think about this passage. I mean, oh my goodness here. I mean, here is an image of God calling you heavenward. It's like our loving Heavenly Father, our loving Savior Jesus is at the finish line and, and He's shouting to us, come on, son, come on, son, come on, daughter, come on, daughter, you can do it. You can make it, right? Keep looking at me. Don't look back, right? Keep your eyes on me. You've come around the last curve, right? You're on the final stretch. So, so keep it up. Come on, you can do it. 
Don't give up. Don't give in. Right? I know you're tired. I know you're weary, but, but you're almost home. Don't give up. Don't give in. Keep on coming. I'm right here waiting for you. Keep pressing toes to gold because I've got a prize for you. Our Heavenly Father is encouraging us, calling us heavenward in Christ Jesus. Paul says, not that I have already obtained all this or have already arrived at my goal, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Brothers and sisters, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it. But one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining towards what is ahead, I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. May that be our all-consuming passion, to forget what the world has to offer us and to press on, keep pressing on towards the Lord Jesus Christ. Would you all bow in prayer with me for a minute? As we get ready to close this morning, I'd like to pray with you and pray for you. And I wonder how many of you might just say this morning by uplifted hand, you know, you'd say, you know, Pastor Paul, I've, I've been struggling to let go of some of these worldly things. If I'm honest, you know, I've had my eye on the world in some measure, some degree, you know, keeping my eye on the world, you know, some worldly thing or, or some sin or something like that. I've been struggling to let go of that. And uh, um, it's getting increasingly difficult. And today I, I, you'd say, in, in God's sight, Pastor Paul, I want to let, there's something I want to let go of today. I want to lay it down before the Lord in faith and let go of that thing today. I want to pray with you and for you. Amen. And I wonder how many of you also, you might say to me, Pastor, you know what? I have had my eyes on Jesus as much as I can. I've been really trying. But you know what, Pastor? The race is getting long. You know, I feel like I'm tired. I don't know when this race is going to end, how much longer it's going to be. It's hard to see the finish line. And I just need some encouragement right now. And you say, you know, Pastor Paul, that's me. I'm looking to Jesus right now this morning for, for some encouragement. I, I want to keep refocusing my eyes on the Lord Jesus. Keep looking heavenward to my Heavenly Father, to the Lord Jesus. You say, that's me this morning. Pastor, pray with me. Amen. Amen. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, I pray for all of your people this morning, wherever they're at. God, there may be some listening to my voice, God. They've been struggling with something of the world, God, some worldly sin, some worldly idea that's that that they're holding on to, God, and uh, trying to serve you on the one hand, God, but trying to uh, hold on to some worldly thing on the other. God, pour out your grace on them, I pray this morning, God, and your favor, God. Give them grace to let go of all the things of the world, to focus with abandon 100% on the Lord Jesus Christ. And God, I pray for those who are feeling weary this morning. They've been, they've been running the race. They've been They've been looking to you, God, but it just seems like the race is long and, and, and uh, they're growing tired, God. God, I pray you come and lift up and encourage your people, strengthen your people, God. Enable us, help us, I pray, God, to keep our eyes focused on you, to get our energy from you, from the power of the Holy Spirit. God, lift up, encourage, and strengthen your people this morning, I pray in the name of Jesus. And God, as we go uh, to our Christian lives this week, God, be with each one, encourage and strengthen for the race all week long. 
God, for it's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. Amen. God bless you all so much. May he fill you with his spirit and strength for every challenge that you face this week. In Jesus' name, God bless.